Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy grace, Thy providential care, and the certainty of our triumph in Jesus Christ. We thank Thee that we can come to Thee and cast our every care upon Thee who carest for us. We pray, our Father, for those of our number who are absent this day, remembering especially Ken and Helen, and praying that Thou wouldst bless them in the work there and give them traveling mercies as they journey homeward. Bless us now as we give ourselves to the study of Thy Word. Grant that we may behold wondrous things out of Thy law. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our scripture this morning is Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, our subject is judging. Judging. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye? And behold, the beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. The church as it has over the generations faced this particular passage has wavered and waffled between two possible interpretations. The tendency has been to take the first verse and apply that as a general principle without reference to verses 2 through 6. Judge not that ye be not judged. And thus, if you open your mouth to say anything in the way of a judgment, however righteous it may be, you're likely by some people to be criticized. On the other hand, very, very obviously, verse 6 requires us to make some apparently drastic judgment. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before a swine. That's a sharp and a harsh statement. It means that we are going to have to assess some people as dogs and others as swine. Well, now, how are you going to reconcile these two apparent contraries? No judgment. Some say you must not call a murderer a murderer. You must refrain from judgment. But here we have, very definitely, our Lord himself speaking of some people as dogs and swine. 
a rather dramatic contrast. And yet our Lord obviously felt there was no contradiction between the two statements. Judge not, that ye be not judged, and give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. What is the meaning? Now our Lord does not forbid judgment. All we have to do is to look at John 7:24. The clearest statement. Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So our Lord tells us that we are not to judge according to appearance, but that we are to judge righteous judgment. Why is it that we do not hear this verse quoted as often as we do hear Matthew 7, 1? Obviously, the same Lord states both. Moreover, judge not that he be not judged is qualified. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. In other words, what is the measure, the standard, the yardstick of your judgment? And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Now, a moat can be a speck of dust, very definitely. But here it means something a little different. Our Lord grew up as a carpenter. He was a carpenter's son. His illustration here is from woodworking, a carpenter's work. Flying sawdust, a speck of sawdust, that's the moat. The beam is a large splinter that has jumped into his eye. Such things can't happen. As a matter of fact, I believe it was last Monday morning when I was out and doing some weeding, and a large foxtail, point first, was flipped right into my eye by my action in weeding. And it took some effort on Dorothy's part to pull it out. Now, our Lord is talking about some such episode. A man who has a splinter in his eye and is being critical of someone who has a moat, a small piece of sawdust. Now, if you have a little speck like that, it will make your eye water and it will come out immediately or within a very short time, normally. But if you have a splinter, you have a problem. You're going to have to have help getting that out and it can be serious. And so our Lord is illustrating what he means by judgment. 
the man who is critical of someone who has a speck of sawdust in his eye, when he himself has a splinter, is obviously a fool. And any man who has a serious fault in his own life and is hypercritical of a speck of dust in somebody else's life, a minor failing or fault, is a Pharisee. He is a hypocrite. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. In other words, our Lord here is talking about two kinds of judgment. One is in terms of God's righteousness, God's justice, God's law. Judge righteous judgment. We have a right, we have a duty to judge righteous judgment. We have all too many people today who are copping out on the necessity to make a righteous judgment. When abortion began to be legalized in the various states and then the Supreme Court sustained abortion, one of the most common things that I was hearing across country from a variety of doctors who were waffling on the issue was this. Well, I personally will never, never perform an abortion. But who am I to sit in judgment on other men? Let that be a matter of their own conscience to decide. Now, is it a matter of the conscience of either doctor to decide? Or is it a matter of God's righteous judgment? So that every doctor who said, let it be a matter for that doctor's conscience to determine what he should do was saying there is no righteous God-given standard. Let every man be his own God, determining for himself what constitutes good and evil. Those doctors were as guilty as the abortionists before God because they had not merely performed an abortion, which is murder, they had set aside the whole law of God and had said, there is no standard. Let every man do that which is right in his own eyes. So our Lord is contrasting righteous judgment, judgment in terms of God's justice and righteousness, as against unrighteous judgment in terms of man's self righteousness, man as his own God, man as his own judge. We shall be judged as we ourselves do judge. With what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. We dishonor God when we place our standards above his. But people do that all the time and very often in the Lord. In fact, 
It is ironic, but we have in the United States regional holiness. Regional holiness. Certain things you do are holy in some areas, and others are terrible sins. Now, this was a great many years ago when I was very new in the ministry. But in one of my travels, I encountered a pastor who was a very lovable man, something of a character, very, very strict, felt very strongly that anyone who danced or went to movies was a lost soul. But you did not dare criticize chewing tobacco around him. Now that's regional holiness. Where he came from, you didn't criticize tobacco. That kind of thing is extremely commonplace even today. About ten years or less later, I think about six or seven years later, I encountered a man who said this with a little bit of humor, but I found out subsequently he meant it. And he said that people who smoked cigarettes were modernists. They were nervous people. But he said, a cigar, now that's a good Calvinistic smoke. It's for a man who has faith and is relaxed and who can sit back with a holy contentment after dinner and light up a good cigar. Now that's regional holiness. And we have much of that today. But it is the Lord who saves us. And it is the Lord's word that must rule us. And our Lord says, No holy things to dogs, and no pearls before swine. The focus of the text is on that which is holy. Now, it can be translated also as the holy thing. It has reference to the food that was brought, the meat that was brought and placed upon the altar. We could understand what it means today in terms of the communion elements. The communion elements. Because to every Jew who heard him when he said, Give not the holy thing, that which is placed upon the altar, to dogs and to swine. That's what he was talking about. So he was illustrating a principle by taking that which to every listener was a particularly sacred thing, the offerings to God that were on the altar, and we could say the communion elements to understand what he meant. Give them not to dogs nor to swine. Now, who is he talking about there? It could be He's illustrating this by talking about homosexuals because the Bible does refer in Deuteronomy 23, verse 18. Deuteronomy 23, 18. 
the homosexuals as dogs. And again in Revelation 22, 15. Revelation 22, 15. I think that meaning does apply clearly today. Now, I don't believe he was limiting it to that meaning. But very definitely, we have that problem today when some people are ready to say that homosexuals should be allowed in the church. They're sinners, but we're all sinners. And why borrow them from, from the Lord's table or from membership? And dogs were unclean animals, unfit to eat. And the idea of taking the holy thing from the altar and giving it to a dog outside was unthinkable. How then should we regard allowing sinners to prevail in the church who are unclean because they choose to be and there is no repentance in them? The early church, for example, understood the text in these terms. We know that in the early church they felt so seriously about the holy thing, the communion elements, that they closed even the service to non-believers. When it was time for communion, every unbeliever and every person, although a believer not yet a member, was asked to leave the service. And anyone who was a sinner without repenting of their sins, was warned against partaking of the elements. Now, as I indicated, here is a simple illustration of its meaning, but it cannot be limited to this. We have to recognize it goes beyond it. D.D. Whedon, an American commentator of about a century and a half or more ago, commented on this text in these words. And I quote, Now, we must discern these characters. We must not entrust a holy thing to a dog. Apostles and bishops must not commit the office of the ministry to a wicked man. No sacred deposit or responsibility or even principle symbolized by pearls must be imparted to an unfit man. No doctrines or religious experiences must be brought before an incapable sensualist. In fine, in imparting the official trusts and the truths of the gospel, we must discern men's moral qualities and deal with them accordingly, unquote. We are therefore to speak, to witness, to work with those who will hear. And if they will not hear, our Lord says, shake off the dust of your feet and move on. Do not waste your breath, the holy things of God, upon those who reject it. Make your witness. If they will not hear, move on. The church has wrestled with this problem over the generations periodically. To give an example of such a concern, when the Puritans and the pilgrims came to America, they had a deep concern about church membership. They were very distressed over the membership of the Church of England because in England everyone who was an English citizen was also a member of the Church of England. 
Everyone was a member. The Puritans were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the church and they said, no, no one just because he is a citizen is therefore a member of the Church of England. We must purge, purify the church of these ungodly men and limit it to believers. And by believers we mean those who believe and obey the Word of God, who give them marks of regeneration in the totality of their lives. They had been sickened by what they had seen in England. As a result, membership was very limited. At one time in one settlement of all the people there, only seven were qualified to be members because they felt a member was a potential office bearer and therefore had to be a person who was of seasoned faith and character. This kind of restrictive membership continued into the early 1800s to 1815, about 1820. This is why any statistics about church membership in the colonial and early American period will be meaningless because the membership will be very low, whereas virtually everyone went to church. Today, the membership is very high and not many of the members go to church. Now, we can say that Perhaps the Puritan view of church membership was too restricted. But we've gone to the opposite extreme and opened it up to make it meaningless. But at least they were aware of the problem. The church today does not give heed to the Lord's words. Judgment is necessary, but we must neither trust in men or in democracy, but in the Lord's word, and be careful that we do not give holy things, holy offices, a holy status to dogs or to swine. Now this presents us with a problem. We have to do some judging. When people come forward to be church members, we have to examine them. We have to prepare them for membership. People don't like that kind of thing. We are spoiled more than ever in our day because we do have computers. You push a button, you get a result. And we want life to be that way. So as we face the problems that are required of us in the form of judgment, we want a computer-like answer. And that is not possible in the religious sphere. Hence, our Lord says, do not judge in terms of self-righteous humanistic standards, but judge righteous judgment. This, therefore, puts the responsibility upon us. And men do not want responsibility in our day and age. 
over and over again I have encountered the fact once or twice firsthand at the mouth of someone in a particular position of importance where hiring and firing men is involved. This fact, that executives today do not like to fire. It means passing judgment. They may know that the person is incompetent, but they want one way or another to get rid of him without firing him. And as I said, I've heard one or two say that they like having the unions control things because at that point it relieves them of the responsibility of judgment. The union has taken away their right to fire. You see, men who do not want to judge righteous judgment will be incapable of making a good judgment in any area of life and thought. We must, therefore, know the whole word of God and in terms of it, judge righteous judgment. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. Do you believe that uh, their church body then that, that uh, a membership is necessary and that those people should be uh, gone through a study program and then taken in front of the elders and such of the church and then decided at that point if they should be allowed into membership? Yes, I do. But let me qualify this. I think one of the weaknesses of many churches is that they organize and institutionalize at once. When it would be far better to take people as a whole through a period of study, a period of training and of knowledge, because the church will have the character that is set at the time it begins to institutionalize itself. And too quick an institutionalization tends to get in the way of growth. Every time a group of people come together, they immediately want to write every kind of document imaginable. Everywhere I go across the country, maybe it's a group of people broken away from a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a whatever. And they work out uh, rules and regulations and uh, documents, just a mountain of them, which have a strangling effect and really cannot cope with problems. Whereas if they, first of all, ensure growth in terms of the whole Word of God, then the institutional element is really not very complex, you see. But growth is the key. And a lot of bylaws and constitutions and that sort of thing can never replace growth. So we've put our trust too much in paper documents. Today, as a result, 
every church body virtually in the United States that meets, whether it's once a year or several times a year, deals with every problem with reports so that out of every presbytery or conference or uh, classes, meeting or whatever it may be, you have a pile of papers like this that come out and they're no closer to the solution of any problem than when they started. We want that kind of answer in our day. That's why we have the kind of federal and state governments we do and the bureaucracy we do. We create machinery. We don't deal with problems directly. We don't create growth. So we do have a problem as a result. We evade necessity of growth, the necessity of a reliance on the Holy Spirit. So you believe then at a, at a particular point in time of uh, study and such that a pastor then should make a decision as to when that church should be institutionalized, right? Yes. I, I think it's a mistake to move too quickly into institutionalism. Then we're putting our primary trust in the forms as though that's the answer. Yes? Would you consider uh, a, a simple fetal statement as uh, a step toward institutionalization? No, I would not. A simple creedal statement if you started a fellowship, if you say use the Apostles Nicene and uh, Athanasian creeds, you'd be making clear who you are and why you have come together. I'm talking about the form of government. Most churches have almost nothing in creed and the majority have nothing at all and everything in terms of rules and regulations as though that were most important. And we have a large number of churches in this country of various denominations that boast no creed but Christ and who will say you can believe anything and be whatever they are. But don't you dare depart one jot or tittle from the regulations and bylaws. Any other questions or comments? Yes? Speaking of judgment, what about people who are victims of uh, assault or uh, theft or assassination attempts and then who afterwards will make the comment that they forgive whoever uh, did this? They're sinning. Um, Anyone who... They're not making any reference to law or punishment. They're yes. Just no, that's a sin. Christian. Uh, they're still sinners. A sin Christian can sin. <laughs> no, that's very commonplace. Uh, there are horrible examples of it. Uh, a girl raped and the father and mother saying... Uh, it was a horrible thing, but we forgive him. They have no right to because it wasn't their law that was violated. It was God's. And before that girl was their girl, that girl was God's. How dare they forgive where God is not forgiven? And 
forgiving someone does not mean that the consequences of their act can be removed. God can forgive a murderer and make him a new creature in Jesus Christ, but he still requires that that murderer be executed. Any other questions or comments? Well, if not, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee for the sufficiency of Thy Word. Thy Word speaks to our every need, our every problem, our every condition. Give us hearing ears and a believing heart that we may take heed unto thy word, that it may always be a lamp unto our feet. We thank thee for thy grace. We thank thee for thy so great salvation and for one another. Bless us this day and always in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen.